Praise the Lord, everybody. Wonderful to be in the house of the Lord today. I hope everybody went and saw the lights uh, down at Archer Park. Had a great time. And uh, I uh, didn't get to go down there. And Friday I had an eye appointment and they were, uh, you know, had dilated my eyes. And then you got, I got to see the lights is what I'm saying. The big bright light. <laughs> so today's lesson though we've got a great lesson today and it's one uh, when I was studying for it it actually uh, it made me think a whole lot so I hope I can relay what uh, uh, I studied about and what God has uh, laid on my heart to talk about today but we're going to dive right into the scriptures 1 Thessalonians 5 23 and 24 says this, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Acts 15, 7 through 11 says this, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. And Romans 6 and 4 is our last verse today. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Pastor, will you pray this morning? Thank you for standing for the word, and you can be seated this morning. And as I talked about in the beginning, uh, this lesson actually, it made me think a whole lot about uh, different things uh, concerning our faith and how we uh, are, and why we do what we do actually. Now, if my research is correct, the word perfect is mentioned 123 times in the Bible. Perfect or perfection or perfected. So the question that I have is, what is perfect? What does perfect mean? And you know, a lot of people, they think about something that's perfect a lot different. People have different definitions for it. 
But Webster's defines it as having all the required or desirable elements, qualities, or characteristics as good as it is possible to be. And the second definition is it's either absolute or it's complete. It's perfect. So who here is a perfectionist? Anybody a perfectionist? Brother Jerry, you're a mechanic. Are you a perfectionist? <laughs> you like an engine put together just right, don't you? Has to be perfect. Who would consider themselves a perfectionist? You? Brother Caleb. Brother Jimmy, you're a perfectionist. Now, what are the signs of being a perfectionist, though? Why do you classify yourself as a perfectionist? Not leaving good enough alone. Is that what Hannah told you? <laughs> but here are some signs of being a perfectionist. It's basically an all or nothing mentality. Perfectionists are satisfied with nothing less than 100% success. They can't be satisfied with anything less than that. Also, perfectionists, sometimes they can be highly critical. They can. They're often very self-critical of themselves, though. and of others. They really don't see the achievements that you make if you get close to 100%. They only see why you didn't get there. Also, they have a feeling that they're being pushed by fear. They're motivated by their failure or the risk of failure more than the achievement. A lot of times they have unrealistic standards. They set goals that are unrealistic to attain, so they never can get there. They're focused only on results. They're concerned only with attaining the goal, but they can't find any joy in the process on getting there. And if they don't meet those goals, guess what happens? They get depressed. Anything less than a complete achievement of that goal, and they feel like a failure, so they get depressed. So that fear of failure, rather than the joy of achievement, is a stronger motivating factor for them. I thought that was very interesting. And also, you wouldn't think that someone who is a, uh, that wants perfection would be this way, a perfectionist. They also can procrastinate. 
I wouldn't think that. But it's a strange quality that for them to have. But the fear of failing causes them to hold back and say, well, I'm not going to start that project because I may fail. I may not attain what the goal I have is. The risk of failure is too painful for them to push forward with the task. Also, another trademark is they're defensive. They become very defensive of any criticism that they have. They're very defensive. And most often, they have low self-esteem. They tend to think of themselves as failures or not worthy or not as good as the lofty standards they set for themselves. So having said all that, is being a perfectionist a good thing? Now who said they were perfectionists here? Do you have these qualities? Do you have these qualities? Some of them. We all do, don't we? To an extent. We all want to be perfect, perfect or a perfectionist in certain things. Now, after I've talked about this, would anyone here want to be a perfectionist and exhibit all these qualities? And most of us would say no. But here today, we're going to talk about, in biblical terms, what is supposed to be perfect. Matthew 5 and 48 says this. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So we know that we serve a perfect God, don't we? He's perfect. And the Bible tells us that we have to be perfect even as He is perfect. Second Corinthians 13:11 says this. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So the Bible calls for us to be perfect, doesn't it? Is anybody in here perfect? Anybody want to raise your hand? No takers. Sister Gracie, you ain't perfect. So we're called to be perfect, though. It actually qualifies that. It asks us to compare ourselves to God, who is perfect. So nobody in the room thinks they're perfect. And nobody in the room definitely, we don't want to compare ourselves to God, do we? And his perfectness. How many heard the term, well, nobody's perfect? Somebody makes a mistake. Somebody goofs up at work. Somebody does the wrong thing. And what do you hear? Well, no, 
How about this one? We're only human. We hear that a lot, don't we? What's, what are they saying? Well, I'm not perfect. I'm just human. So all of us would agree that we are not perfect. Yet, we describe others as perfect. We don't think of ourselves as perfect, do we? But we have described others as perfect. We might say that we have the perfect spouse. Anybody ever said that before? Especially after you first get married. I have the perfect children. I have the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend. I've got the perfect job. Normally, somebody's trying to hire you, they'll say that. I've got the perfect job for you. Then when you get in there, it's you're wading mud hip deep. Or I go to the perfect church. So after you've been married a while, you may not say you're married to the perfect spouse. None of us have, are all perfect. So what we're going to do today, we're going to spend some time that we're going to dive into these topics and broaden our understanding of what God's definition of perfection is and how that relates to us and our walk with Him. So biblical perfection, what is biblical perfection? Most of us would define biblical perfection as what? Living a sin-free life? Being sin-free? That's per perfect? Perfectness? Some, would, uh, some of us would say walking in the ways of God. My question is, can we ever achieve such a lofty standard? When it says that we have to be perfect as God is perfect. Can we achieve that? Now, before I retired and was working, we always set goals on the key elements of the business that were important. If we met those goals and we achieved those goals, we knew that we could be successful. So we had those goals. And goals for safety and costs and regulatory compliance and production. We had those goals. And I'm sure, Brother Dwayne, your company has those. Every company probably does have those in some form or fashion. Now, we called that a scorecard. And we would grade ourselves on this scorecard every month. We would have a monthly scorecard that come out. And we monitor those goals on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, quarterly and annually. And we also gave incentives to all the people that work there if we attained those goals, such as bonuses and gifts for when we achieved those. Those were always nice to get. And as long as the goals were achievable, everybody worked hard toward getting them. 
Some years when corporate would set the goals, though, they would be set way far out. And we knew they were that we just couldn't get there. I don't care what we did, we were never going to attain those goals. They were set impossibly high for what resources that we had. Guess what happened? People just quit trying. If you can't get there, what's the use? That's the feeling that you have. I mean, it's a natural feeling. So I was a big believer in setting goals that were attainable to the situation. A stretch maybe to get there, maybe you had to work hard to do that, and that was fine. You put forth the proper effort, you could still do it. But when we deal with biblical perfection, it's similar. We have goals to attain, we have achievements to be made, and we have rewards to be had. So let's talk about some of the facts about the word and some common misconceptions that has seeped into our theology. Our scripture text today from Acts chapter 15 leads us into a dispute within the early church. Now most of the Bible readers here understand what that was, but this dispute focused on the Gentiles coming into the church as they entered into the early church and what behavior should or should not be tolerated by the church for these believers. Now, one side of the debate was the converted Jews. They had been Jews their whole life, uh, most particularly a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees that had been converted they had followed the, uh, the Torah and the Mosaic Law uh, their entire lives. And a lot of them still adhered to those traditions. They would only eat certain meats, such as, you know, you couldn't eat pork. Uh, you had certain dress codes that you followed. Uh, you had holy days that you... Uh, followed. So there was certain of those things that they had. Circumcision was another one. And this became a very heated debate. The Bible says there was no small dissension and disputation. So that means it was very heated. It was a large dispute within the church. Now, the, the Pharisees, they're well, well versed in the law, and they were finding it hard to accept this new covenant, one that was based on grace. And to understand that, we have to go back into what the Jewish faith actually was and still is today. But on the other side of the Gentiles were the Gentiles and apostles that namely Peter and Paul and later James, they were the most vocal concerning this. So you can imagine if you have this large dispute, it's just like 
if we're sitting down in this room and we have a large dispute and we're arguing back and forth, you have a massive church split in the making, don't you? It's what usually happens, doesn't it? But the key issue was when all the pretenses were stripped away was the question of what gave us righteousness. How did we become holy? You ever thought about that? What actually gives you righteousness? What actually makes you holy? The Bible says we should become a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. So what makes you holy? The Jewish faith, faith, though, is steeped in works. To obtain salvation, basically, if you follow the law of Moses, you keep those commandments, the holy days, circumcision, you abstain from certain meats, and you do these things, you obtain salvation. It's a works-based religion. And if you talk to Jewish people today, they find comfort in that. I've listened to some people talk about it, and they like that part about it. It's defined. The Jewish religion hasn't changed much. It's still this works-based religion. So what this group sought to establish with these demands on the Gentiles was basically just another sect or branch of Judaism, of the Jewish religion. And we can understand that this would have destroyed the early church. But as always, God had people in place that he had revealed his truth to, and ones necessary there to expound his truth to everyone. Now Peter stood up in this group and he recounted the story of Cornelius' household being converted, the first Gentile conversion that we have in the Bible. And Peter just didn't go there on his own, did he? What happened to Peter? He was on a rooftop, and a vision of the Lord came. And he said, slay and eat. All manner of beast, even the unclean. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that, Lord. I'm a good Jew. That's basically what he was saying. I'm keeping the Torah. I'm keeping the Mosaic law. But God showed him. He said, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. So he showed him in that vision that the Gentiles were going to be brought in. And as soon as he had the vision, someone come knocking on the door. And he immediately understood what God was telling him. So he recounted that. But what was the evidence that he said in this council meeting in the 15th chapter of Acts? What was the evidence that God had accepted these people? said they had received the Spirit. 
and God had accepted that as their belief in him. So, that evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on them was proof of their saving belief. That also meant, and as we read in another verse this morning to start with, that God had purified their hearts by what? Purified their hearts by faith. And then Paul, since he was a Pharisee, he understood how these folks thought, didn't he? He had been miraculously converted, though. And the one responsible for more Gentiles being brought into the church than probably anyone at that time. So Paul reiterated his account, and it was the same as Paul's. The Holy Ghost was being received by these people. And that was their guarantee of sanctification. James then asked everybody to listen to him. And he outlined Peter's account that the Gentiles were accepted because of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit working within them. But he also said we should not burden the Gentiles with the Torah or with the Mosaic law. That's not the new covenant. The old covenant was done away with. So we shouldn't burden them with that. And what did he say? He said that neither we nor our fathers could keep this. It's important, I think, that once the Bible says this was settled, and they had a big argument, but once this was settled, that it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church where this, the dispute took place to write letters to the other churches explaining this doctrinal issue to them and what the resolution was. Now contrast that to today. If we had a big argument and a big fight about some doctrinal issue, what would happen? If you have a disagreement, most often what? You leave. Find some, you know, I'm going down the road somewhere. It happens, doesn't it? But in the early church, it didn't, did it? So how do we attain perfection? We've often been called the holiness movement or church, haven't we? Yeah. Why has that been attached to our church? Why? 
biblically based. A lot of churches say they're biblically based. But the holiness, it, it says you're part of the holiness church. You go to the holiness church up there. What does that actually mean? What are people trying to say? or how, Why are they defining it as such? It made me ask those questions. So I'm asking you. We like to think of ourselves as holiness, don't we? Mm -hmm. We dress modestly. We set ourselves apart from the world, don't we? We hold ourselves to a higher standard, to a higher moral code. We don't drink, smoke, or dip. And the Bible tells us, holiness without which no man shall what? See the Lord. Also says, be ye holy as I am holy. So we take these verses to heart and we try to live by them, don't we? But the question is, what makes us holy? Does what we wear make us holy? Does not drinking, smoking, etc. make us holy? Does women not cutting their hair make them holy? Does men cutting their hair make them holy? These are all things that our church believes in and teaches and upholds. And if you look at the world, and you would ask the world that first question, why is our church called a holiness church? Most often the world would point to those things and say, that's why. Right? They would, that's what they would define this as. So, does doing those things in and of itself make us holy? Why or why not? I think it's critical that we understand why we believe something and the biblical significance of why we do or do not do something. Now, I'm going to probably blow your theological thinking with my next statement. In and of themselves, none of these things make us holy. In and of themselves. God does not, nor will he ever, impute righteousness upon us for doing these things. We are not going to receive salvation by doing these things in and of themselves. And I think that's very interesting. So the question for you and me is why hold to these beliefs? And we have to understand why we do these things. It's not because the pastor says to do that. Or if you're going to be a member of the church, 
this is what the church believes. We have to, in our heart, understand these things. Why not be like the rest of the churches and just anything goes? So let's get into that just a little bit. I hope I can explain this to where we all get a glimpse of God's glory. The Bible says that we look through a glass darkly. So we can get an idea of God's nature. Here we can get an idea of what that is. But we don't see clearly all of God's nature, do we? We get a glimpse of it. So that's what we're going to try to do today, just get a glimpse of where God's nature is and how we fit into that. As we studied earlier, the Torah, which is the law of Moses upon which Jewish faith is founded, that's a works-based religion. You do certain things and you're saved. The problem is that the Jewish people could never maintain that. They would always get to a certain level and then they would fall. They would get to a certain level and they would fall. If you study about all the kingdoms uh, in Israel and all the kings, some of them would have a revival and they would go and tear down the high places of worship of other gods and get back to a, a, a God-based religion and things would be fine for a while. But eventually, they would always backslide. So they could never maintain that. And that's why James said, we can't place a burden on these people that we've not been able to bear, nor our fathers. So God knew that a works-based religion was not a long-term answer to salvation. From the foundation of the world, he knew that. But he had a plan for a new and better way. And that plan was a departure from an individual works-based salvation to a grace-based salvation. Now, we all know that if there's sin, what do you have to have to get rid of sin? A sacrifice, blood, a blood sacrifice to be specific but you have to have a sacrifice. Really, though, when we look at that, a grace-based religion, what that means for each of us is not we're not holy because of our works and our own deeds. We're not holy because of that. The Bible clearly states to us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good you can be. Your righteousness is as filthy rags to God. So we have no hope of being righteous before God, do we, in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can do as a work for us to be as holy as God. But 
Yet the Bible says to be holy as he is holy. Is that a contradiction? Some people would think it may be. Is that an impossible standard for us to achieve? But we're admonished to do it. Sometimes we fall into this trap that our holiness standards that we live is a work that we do to please God. We fall into that trap. In the holiness church, we do. That's a work that we do to please God. Somehow that our salvation is tied to these standards. There's a real risk that we can become like the old Pharisees and let ourselves fall into that trap of thinking like that. But we have to remember our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Pharisees and the Jews today still believe that their work saved them, that that accomplishes salvation. The Pharisees, they're, they're like us. They dressed a certain way. They went out in the square and, and prayed loudly so that all could hear them. They observed all the feast days and holy days and Sabbaths. They studied the scriptures. They prayed many times a day, ate only certain things. In other words, they're committed to these works that they must do, and they were critical of everyone that didn't follow those. But when I look at myself, as I study this, I'm thinking through my life, have I allowed myself to be the same way? Have I been critical of others? And yeah, I can say I probably have been. Probably everybody in this room can probably say that. But that's an incorrect and misinterpretation of God's salvation plan. We become like the Pharisees when we allow ourselves to think like that. And we only scratch the surface of what God wants for us. So how do we accomplish God's holiness, godly holiness? What does accomplish salvation? You strip everything away, what's the basis of your salvation? That's the key question. What provides you the ability to live with God forever? What has the ability to give you eternal life? What's the foundation and the building blocks? The basis is very simple, and we probably all know what that basis is. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation upon which every soul can be saved in this world. And there's no other foundation that you can build upon. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says this, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And now this is what Jesus was referring to when he spoke to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus asked the question about being saved. And Jesus said, you must be born again of water and of, of the Spirit. It doesn't say of Spirit, any Spirit. It's of the Spirit. So, that's what he was talking about. It's our old sinful nature has to die out. When we join Jesus in death, and we all must do that, we all must die to sin. When we join Jesus in death, our old sinful nature, that old man no longer exists. And it says that we rise to walk in newness of life, not in the old ways of life, but in newness of life. So when we die out to sin, we, we experience that same death along with Jesus. And that man of sin doesn't exist anymore. We are washed clean of those deeds of the old ways. And Christ had to die, and he was buried in the ground for three days. And we also have to be buried. The Bible says that we are to be buried in baptism. That's how we are to be buried. And then we're resurrected to walk in the newness of life. When we come out of that water, we get resurrected. When we're resurrected, we have to have the breath of life put into us, don't we? And that breath of life is the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. Romans 6 and 6 and 7, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So if we die, die with Christ, the Bible says we are freed from sin. And Galatians 2 and 20 says this, one of my favorite verses, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. We can be crucified with Christ, but we can still be alive. We can still live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul's actually telling the church in Romans is that when we have died with Christ, our body of sin is totally destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. We don't serve sin any longer. Once we're dead with Christ, we're free from a life of sin. As Christians, we at times, though, we still sin, don't we? 
we may commit a sinful act. We may say something wrong to somebody. We call it getting in the flesh, don't we? We argue or inadvertently we might say something to somebody. It happens, doesn't it? But what happens when we do that? We become convicted of this, don't we? There's something within us that says, hey, you did something wrong. We become convicted of that. And what do we do? We seek repentance in that. The difference, though, before and after is we are no longer living under the dominion of sin. We have power over that sin. We're not ruled by our old sinful nature. We have something within us that tells us and guides us to repentance. It also gives us the power to resist and defeat sin in our lives. Romans 6, 13 through 14. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall have no dominion, sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, but under grace. What Paul's actually saying there is that once we yield ourselves unto God and to the Spirit of God, we're no longer dead, but we're alive. We become righteous with God at that point in time. We're not ruled by sin at that point in time. And I think this is where a lot of people get it backwards. Sanctification is not our achievement for God. Sanctification is not our achievement for God. But rather, it's God's achievement in us. God achieves sanctification in us. Our works didn't do anything. We can't provide salvation or sanctification. Nothing that we can do does that. Our work, though, is for us to simply yield to the Spirit and that Spirit's work within us. So how do we attain that perfection, perfection of the saints? How do we achieve perfection? John 17, 22 through 24 says this, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, thou and me, that they may be made, what? Perfect. In one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So what Jesus was saying here, he was telling us how we are going to be made perfect. I in them, verse 23, Jesus in them, Jesus in us, the Holy Ghost, thou in me, God and the Father, God the Father and God the Son are one. That's what it says right here. And then it also says in verse 22 that they may be one, even as we are one. So we become one with Christ through the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost lives within us. The Spirit was given to us. So how do we achieve that perfection? By becoming one with Christ. By receiving the Holy Ghost. Hebrews 5, 8 through 10 says this, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Talking about Jesus. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 says this, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. You know, I think it's interesting there. It says unto perfection. It didn't say into perfection. It says unto perfection. We're not going to achieve perfection in our fleshly bodies. So we have to press toward perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So let us go on toward perfection and of faith toward God. We think of perfection as never making a mistake, never committing a sin, never making a mistake. Folks, if you think that, you're never going to live up to that standard. And you can't bear that kind of pressure. It'll cause you to fail. God never intended for us to do so. But our righteousness does not come from God or does not come from ourselves, but rather it comes from God. That's where our righteousness comes from. We can't attain a righteous state. We've already stated that today. But we're made perfect through him and in him. The spirit within us is perfect. God's spirit within us is perfect. So there's a part of you that's perfect. If you've got the Holy Ghost, there's a part of you that's perfect. 
It's like that old song. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. But there's a part of us that's perfect. And that's God living within us. Our flesh is not perfect and never will be perfect. It's why one day we're going to receive a different body. This flesh cannot enter heaven. But one day our body will be changed. So that perfect part can go back to God. The spirit is divine and it's free of sin. It's sinless and always be sinless and perfect. So that part of you that's the Holy Ghost will always be perfect and sinless. So we're admonished, though, to strive toward perfection. Let us go on, let us go on unto perfection. It's a journey. It's not a destination that we reach, but it's a journey. And it's what we're supposed to do is to continue the journey and show constant improvement. I'm reminded of the story of, the, of an old baseball umpire. And he said, man, you think your job's tough. He said, I have to be perfect the first day on the job and then show constant improvement. As we yield ourselves to the Spirit, though, we let Jesus become larger in our lives, don't we? We draw closer to Him, then guess what? We become more holy. We become more holy as He is holy. The Spirit will move and guide us if we allow it and move us into a higher level. It's not our work in God, but God's work in us that provides a way for us to achieve holiness. Let me say that again. It's not our work in God, but it's God's work in us that provides us a way to achieve holiness. If we dress a certain way, if we act a certain way, if we speak a certain way, and think that we're doing a work for God, and that it provides holiness, or righteousness, we're mistaken. But the Spirit moving within us, and we're allowing the Spirit to guide us and wanting to be pleasing to God, then we achieve that righteousness and that holiness that God desires of His saints. There's many people out there in this world that dress a certain way. The Muslims, they're women, you can't even see their face. If you look closer to home, you look at Amish and Mennonite people. They dress more conservative than we do. But is that righteousness? Is that holiness? Your holiness is in your heart. Your righteousness is in your heart. So if you're doing these things just out of 
a sense of duty. We're not doing them for the right reason. Our holiness and our righteousness, our perfection comes from God. We didn't earn it. We can't do enough works to attain it. But yet it's freely given by Christ unto us. Our Savior, which was the perfect sacrifice. Our perfection will only come from Christ and His Spirit that is within us. Now, I know my time's running out, but I'm going to leave you with this analogy. And then uh, I'll turn it over. And it's a relationship between a parent and a child. And I know we have a lot of parents in here. And you can take a parent and they become extremely proud of their child. And most often, it's justified. I know there's some children out there that when we look at them, we think that's a pure heathen. And they're mean. And a lot of times they'll stay mean their entire life and they're into all kinds of stuff, in and out of prison. And you may not be proud of that child. But I'm talking about a child that tries to be obedient, tries to do what you ask them to do. That parent is very proud of that child. And you know what? They love that child with a fierce loyalty. There's been all kinds of fights about you say something to somebody's child or say something about somebody's child. Want to make somebody mad? Say something about your children. Sometimes then the child would even be in the wrong. But that parent relishes all the successes that that child achieves, doesn't they? Don't they? The child gets good grades, and what happens? It's all over Facebook. Look what little Johnny did. So they relish in those successes. They relish in all the milestones, the first steps taken. We'll find out about that. Take pictures. Look here. First words that are, that are spoken, how, you know, learning to ride a bike. Good grades that they receive at school, proud of that. Graduations. You know, if they exhibit a quality that you like, say that they are kind to somebody else and they do something for somebody, you know, that you relish in those successes that that child has. They become productive members of society and you think, man, I'm so proud of them. Any talents that they may have, you're proud of that. And justifiably so. Why is that? Because, in a sense, that child becomes a reflection of the parent. People look at the child and they say, they say man, they're, they're good people. They had good folks that raised them. People think that. They become a reflection of that. Parents can even express this. 
that they have the perfect child. They couldn't ask for a better child sometimes is what they'll say. I just couldn't ask for a better child. Does that mean the child's perfect, though? No. There have been times that that child did something wrong and needed correction, right? The Bible says that mischief is in the heart of a child. It's baked in. It's in the DNA. It's going to happen. There have been times that that parent may not have been proud of that child for something they did. But you know that parent still loves that child with that same fierce loyalty and does everything to lead that child into the right way, helps that child in any way it can. But that child is perfect in the parent's eyes because of the love that, that parent has. Now, the same is true of us with God. His love overshadows us. When we receive His Spirit, we become perfect in His sight. We are one with Him. That's what the Bible says. We're one with Him. We may not be perfect, but God imputes His righteousness to us. He covers us with his righteousness, his holiness, and his perfection. And like a child becomes a reflection of their parent, our holiness is a reflection of his spirit moving and working within us. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brother Dwayne. Brother Keith setting a high bar this morning, isn't it? Amen. Even though I know the perfect God, in no way can I ever strive to be perfect because I want to be more like Him. Don't you believe that? Because I want to see a reflection of Him in my life. I want this world to see a reflection of Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Have any birthdays or anniversaries this morning?
always a good thing in church. Amen. Anybody got any seed that would like to sow? JJ, run. Did that one do? She'd give it all, yep. Amen. You know, that's, that'd be a good message. If yeah. we could give her all to the that's Lord. Right. Amen. Bring right. it all to Jesus. Amen. I thought about a message I preached a long time ago. I actually thought about it when Brother McKinney was uh, teaching last. And it was called Place Your Name Here. We can all put our names in the places where the unnamed people in the Bible are, can't we? Right. Amen. Amen. The woman at the well, don't name her name. That's not what's important. But one name that is important, amen, the name that you teach your children above all else. My last name, it's important to them. I want to know my heritage, you know, my dad's. But that name, Deuteronomy 12 and 5 says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there. Right. Saints of God, I'm proud to be called to Jesus' right. name, ain't you? Brother Keith, I'm proud to be called a holy roller, ain't you? Amen. Right. Holiness, amen. I'm proud of it. I want to say that I'm proud of my girls, amen, this morning. I'm, I, you know, as he was teaching, I was thinking about them. He put their birthday money in. You know, they were laying there and they were born early. Rachel's heart wasn't even fully formed yet. Amen. But I saw, Brother McKinney's perfection in my children. Amen. Though they wasn't fully formed, Sister Jill, they were perfect in our eyes. Amen. And God looks at us like that. Amen. How many remembers those songs? He's still working on me. Amen. Yes. Brother Keith, I'm not perfect yet, but he's still working on me. Amen. I'm a work in progress, and I'm just going to keep on pushing. Amen. I'm going to do like Paul, and I'm going to press toward that mark. Amen. Just keep on pushing. Amen. And one day, we'll all be perfect with him. Amen. How many is going to press toward that mark? How many is going to keep on pushing? This week's been tough, amen. But we're going to keep on pushing, amen. Because my God is able, amen. How many is going to worship with us today? He's able to do above and beyond, hallelujah. We all worship with us, hallelujah, for us. 
to remember all of those on our prayer list. Let's continue to pray for them. If you have a prayer request you'd like to make known just by the raising of your hand, there's faith in this house. I believe the Lord's going to touch some lives here today and there's going to be a touch that you're going to go home knowing that he, you have been in the presence of an almighty God. How I many feels like you're in the presence of an almighty God? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your presence. We thank you for this opportunity you've given us, Lord, to present all of our cares before you. We know, Lord, if we cast them before you, you care for us. You'll take care of them. You said ask and we can receive. So we're asking, Lord, that you would touch each and every one, sick and afflicted, those that need encouraged, those that need uplifted, those that this time of year are just grieving because of the loss of a loved one or the loss of a friend. But they will be comforted, Lord, in your peace. And Lord, I just pray that you would let your peace and, and just begin to flow in this service, Lord. And we give you the praise in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
of my days. He's still the light in the darkness. He's still able to lead you through your valley, through your wilderness, and through the Red Sea, through your Nile River, whatever you're facing, Jordan River, you can get through it all. Amen. Through the name of Jesus. I believe that as we look at all the things the Lord done for his people, we can say if he did it for them, he has to do it for us. Amen. We want to uh, take up today's offering, so we're going to ask our ushers to come and give us the Lord blesses you. Lord, we come before your presence. We thank you for this opportunity you've blessed us to give. I pray, Lord, that you would take what we give, multiply it, and use it, Lord, and get glory from it. Bless us to be able to reach each and every one that we can with your word. For it's all in the mighty name of Jesus we ask and pray.
beautiful star of Bethlehem. learned a long time ago about uh, ages when people become more mature they don't get old and uh, thank you for being in the house of the Lord the Lord is good to us today this is the last service until we have service Wednesday after Christmas so this is the last service uh, we won't be having our New Year's or our uh, Christmas Eve uh, service on Sunday we're calling that family day. We want you to spend time with family. I know some of you all is going to be out of town. Some of your out of town families going to come in. And if you're like me, you're spread all over the place because you have all sorts of different uh, schedules and different things that has to be met. So uh, at Christmas time every year, we always take that Sunday and we just call it family day. And you know, the church, uh, the first church was actually a family. It was actually a family. Adam and Eve was the first church, if you really want to get down to it. And so uh, family is very important because if the family falls apart, the church falls apart. And that's, that's the way it goes in life. If, you, uh, if your family falls apart, then uh, the church don't have much of, of a chance to tell people they need to raise their children in church and be faithful to God and all these things because people just take life I guess very lightly, but I'm glad that you're here today. I'm glad you don't take life lightly because you're in the house of the Lord. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 1. Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 1. And I want to begin reading at this because I feel that it'll be important for us to uh, study a little bit about a, a small town. Everybody say a small town. Small town. Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 1, it begins to read, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, or ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Everybody say, that was a lie. Was a lie. He didn't want to worship Jesus. Just like a lot of people don't want to worship Jesus today. They want to kill whatever is worshiping Jesus. And they want to kill the praise and the worship. We'll talk a little bit about that. He, he said, I want to come and worship him also. 
When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they saw the sign that was told them, you follow this star. It will appear, it will lead you to where Jesus is. The baby's going to be born they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I wonder if we could close our Bibles right now and if we could begin to just lift our hands in our hearts and rejoice greatly in the Lord as we talk to you about a small town. Lord, we come before your presence and we thank you, Lord. We give you honor. We give you praise. We rejoice with exceeding great joy because we have seen the star and the star's not in the sky. The star is not in Hollywood. The star is not in Nashville. But Lord, you are the star of our life. Lord, we ask that you would help us today as we speak to your precious people that they will leave this place knowing that big things can happen in a small town. And Lord, we're going to give you the praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout of praise with exceeding great joy. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And you may be seated. It all started in a small town. Only Matthew and Luke tell of the birth and childhood of Jesus. Mark and John focus more on the ministry of Jesus. Bethlehem literally is interpreted house of bread. Bethlehem was the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bethlehem was one of the oldest towns in Palestine. We find that Bethlehem in its earliest name was Ephrathah. It's E-P-H-R-A-T-A-H. Often referred to later as Bethlehem Judah. And Bethlehem Judah is just a combination of house of bread and praise. So I praise him in the house that gives me bread. The house that sustains me. The house that I come to when I'm hungry. The house I come to when I'm thirsty. The house I come to when my nerves are tore up. The house I come to when my mind is troubled. The house I come to when I need encouraged. The house I come to when I need, hallelujah, to know that he is there. There's something about Bethlehem Judah that we all ought to praise him right now now for what he's done for us. He's your provider. He is your help. He is your hope. Bethlehem Judah. We find this story interesting because sometimes the only time we read this is at Christmas. We find that it's a time when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and it was in the days of Herod the king. We find that wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. They wanted to know where is this king. And they began to ask questions. And they began to say we've seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him. 
I believe they were true worshipers. I believe they made the journey because they wanted to worship. I don't know what you came to do this morning and what journey you have made, but I have come to worship and praise the Lord. I I made a journey when I got out of my house. I, I made a journey when I got in my car. You made a journey when you started up the road or across the hill. You made a journey. Oh, somebody say, I have come to worship him. I've come to praise him. I made a journey not to sit on a pew I made the journey to worship my Savior I made this journey not to sit still and try to just endure to the end. I made this journey because I know there's nothing like being in the presence of Jesus. I made this journey because I knew that somebody's going to sing a song that's going to usher me into the presence of the Lord. I made this journey this morning because I know that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. I don't know about you but I made the journey so I can worship him. We find that not only did they say they have come to worship him, Herod said, well, I want to worship him too. You got to watch about people who are not sincere wanting to do the same thing you do. We find that there was a prophet one time. He was an old prophet. And the man of God had been told to not eat bread or drink water in that city, but to come straight back. And he didn't. An old prophet met him in the way and said, Oh, I'm a prophet too. Be careful of people that want to tell you how spiritual they are. Be careful of people that's bragging about how much God is in their life. Be careful of people that come up to you and say, oh, I've got what you got, and we're going to just worship the Lord together. We're all trying to get to the same place anyway. i got news for you. We may all be trying to get to the same place, but we all ain't worshiping the same God. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to make it. Everybody's got their mind made up. I'm going to get there. But not everybody is worshiping Jesus. The wise men said, tell me where he's at. Where is he born? We've seen this star. We've seen the sign. We know everything is set. We know he's here because when God says something, it comes to pass. So we know he's going to be born here. And we've come to see him and to worship him. And Herod heard these things, and Herod was like a lot of people don't like you being in church this morning. Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. People get troubled when people start getting spiritual. People get troubled when people start watching. When revival breaks out, it troubles a community. (laughs) When revival breaks out, it messes up the devil's playground. I believe that when you services start abounding in numbers, people will scramble their, their, their best to try to get people not to come and be a part of what God's doing. 
I believe that when Sunday school starts growing, there's going to be people that are going to be like Herod. Oh, I want to worship him too, only to drag you down. Don't let nobody drag you down. Your praise is the most important thing that you can do after giving your life to Jesus. You got to learn how to worship. You got to learn how to praise. The wise men said, we've come to worship him. Herod said, I'm going to do it too. But he was troubled and all all of Jerusalem with him and then he gathered the chief priests and scribes of the people together and he demanded them uh, where is Christ born and they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea I believe that when he heard this uh, he wanted to get to Jesus and kill him the devil has always had a mind to kill Jesus the devil has if you don't think the devil's still trying to kill Jesus today Today, look at our society. Nobody is in this world is, is now, you know, they had a they had a, a, a satanic temple that put up a, a devil uh, idol and put it up in a nativity scene. And somebody went and took it out and then got arrested. The satanic temple didn't have a right to do that. But yet the one that removed it got arrested. This is how twisted our world is. Our world is so twisted that now good is evil. Everything you do good is looked at. You're evil. You're the problem. You're the thing that's causing all this mess. And, and what is people starting to say? At first, it was all, oh, let's support Jerusalem. Let's support Israel. Let's give them all they need to wipe out Hamas. You know what they're saying now? No, even our president is saying you need to pull it back. You need to reel it in. You don't need to be doing this. Well, I'll tell you what. There was one person that made more sense than anybody. And yes, I guess he has Jewish descent. But he said unless Hamas is annihilated, Hamas is going to show up in the U.S., uh, in, the, in Europe. It's going to show up in other countries. And if you think you're safe in a small town, we're not too far. And I believe that you can understand big things happen in little towns, but also big evil is in little towns. Uh, I believe that we got to come to the place uh, where we say I'm going to make sure that my eyes are on Jesus because I don't know if Hamas is in Kentucky but I would not doubt it. I don't know if Hamas has come through the southern border but most people think it has. I don't know if America's going to have another 9-11 but most of the military intelligence says we will. Is that going to shake your faith or are you going to worship Jesus? Is that going to shake your faith are you going to praise the Lord life as we know it is going to change sooner or later and we have got to learn that when life begins to change and things begin to happen you may not have the liberty to do what you're doing right now you may not have the liberty to gather together they may be standing at the doors of church houses uh, with rifles and telling you to turn back and go back home I believe that we're living in that 
day and that time. But I believe that also you can be like the wise men that says I've got to make it where Jesus is. I can worship him. I can praise him. I can lift up his name. He's worthy today. I love him because he first loved me. He pulled me out of the miry clay. He put me up on a solid foundation. He gave me a reason to live and he's been so good to me. If the Lord has been good to you, give a praise unto our God. Bethlehem was a small town. The Bible says that it was a small town. Art not the least among the princes of Judah. Bethlehem was a small town with typical Jewish village at the time of Jesus' birth with a population of about two to 3,000. That's, that's probably Phelps may have about, I don't know, I think at one time they say if you count all the hollows and the feeder areas and all that, that we might have 4,500 people. But I'd say in Phelps we're about 700 and you get over across the hill and you'll find another 100, 200 people. You get across the hill, find another 200. And here, 200. There, 200. Everywhere, 200. <laughs> Next thing you know, you might add up to close to being two to 3,000. We call ourselves a small town. I got tickled. Somebody said, I'm from a small town. Says, uh, we just have about 15,000 people. I said, sit down. <laughs> you ain't from no small town. You ain't from a small town until you say, uh, we ain't got nothing but two lane roads. You ain't from a small town until you start calling the, the interstate four lanes. You ain't from a small town until you say, it takes me 30 minutes to get to town. Because you see, sometimes people say, well, how, how long does it take you to get to town? Well, you don't say, well, it's it's 28 miles away or 30 miles away. You say, it takes me about 30 minutes. Small town. Small town thinking is, is uh, no different than it was in Bethlehem because Bethlehem had about two to 3,000 people according to most Bible scholars at the time of Jesus' birth. People lived in clans. They were the original clan. They wasn't the hillbilly clan. But you know why they call us hillbilly clans? It's because we stick together. Clans were people, families, generations that lived in the same house. This is something that has been over and over again in the past in different countries. Not so much America, modern day America, old America that might have been the case, but modern day America, uh, families don't live together. Uh, you know, you've heard the saying, there's just not enough room for two families in a house. And what they're saying is it causes trouble. But back in biblical days, they didn't want to cause trouble. They wanted to help make everything work. So we find that two or 3,000 people, according to most Bible scholars, and they were in clans, usually living in clans, usually in a large one or two room house. Built around one of the many caves of Bethlehem in the limestone hills. 
Don't sound like much, does it? Don't sound like a tourist attraction. Of course it is today, but back then it was not. It doesn't sound like a place that you would like to go and say, I must go to Bethlehem. I want to see those clans in those small houses in a small town. You didn't look and say, I wanted to go to that small town. But I want you to know that it all started in a small town. Jesus was born in a small town. I like our small town here in Phelps, Kentucky. I I don't put it down. I don't look at it as being less than. I look at it as being one of the greatest opportunities to have the greatest harvest and the greatest revival in the area. Somebody ought to shout about that because if you got something against a small town, you would have never made the trip to worship Jesus. You would have never followed the star to worship Jesus. Oh, all these people that think they got to be in a big town, all they're talking about is they got to have more opportunities to be out of church, to go places, do things, and all this. We get in a small town on a Sunday. Most people still believe you ought to be in church. I'm still of this belief. Don't mow your grass on Sunday. Oh, we're living in a day now. It's nothing to hear people mowing their grass. I go by and people's mowing their grass on Sunday. I say, you should be in church. Why have people quit worshiping Jesus? Why are we in such a world that small towns are looked down upon? That if you ain't in Washington, D.C. Or, or, you know, Portland, Oregon. Or Seattle, Washington. Or Louisville, Kentucky. That nothing big's going to happen. They probably thought that too. Because Bethlehem was the least. But something great. And let's just say this. They were the least. But the greatest thing was about ready to happen. I believe that in a small town, big things can happen. I believe in a small town, most of us can say this about small towns. Phelps is a small town. Everybody knows everybody, which is a good thing. You know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? Just because Phelps is a small town does not limit its potential. You say your kids got to move off to get, you know, opportunities. What's wrong with opportunities in a small town? Somebody says, well, there's just nothing here. Well, maybe we ought to pray that God brings something here. Maybe we ought to pray that the coal business starts booming again. Maybe we ought to quit being so woke that we don't even understand that God gave us coal so we could survive. God gave us oil so we could have warm houses and electricity. God has given us some stuff so we can have what we need to be sustained because this world is not going to last forever. And global